0: Uh, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are the God who is with us and for us. Please have mercy now as we come uh, to your word that you would grant us uh, ears that hear. Father, please pour out your spirit that we would uh, listen to your words, be convicted by them and so moved to do what they say. And please help me uh, in my great weakness to speak clearly, truthfully, and boldly as I should, so that in the preaching and hearing of your word, you would be honoured, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I wonder if you've heard of a man named Polycarp. who uh, It doesn't just sound like a Pokemon before it was cool. Uh, he was the Bishop of Smyrna in the early 2nd century, at a time when great persecution broke out against Christians in Rome. Uh, Polycarp was brought into a public arena in order to be thrown uh, to some hungry lions unless he would renounce Christ and swear by Caesar alone. When Polycarp was unmoved by the peril of the beasts, they threatened him with fire, to which he famously replied, Eighty-six years I have served Christ, and he has done me no harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. And for this reply, he was burned at the stake. Christianity has a long history of those who have died for their faith in Jesus, names like Irenaeus, Oregon, Cyprian, all the way through to the likes of Ridley and Bonhoeffer. In fact, such a trend continues today where it's estimated over 300 people every month lose their life for their Christian faith in our world. Uh, This trend was famously picked up uh, in the 16th century when John Fox wrote his famous book of martyrs. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. But the word martyr actually just means witness. Uh, The Greek word for witness is martyrios, which transliterated is just kind of martyr. And over time, martyr has come to take on this idea of someone that witnesses unto the point of death. And in Acts 6 and 7, that was just read, we meet Stephen, who is known as the first Christian martyr. Uh, You should know over the last few weeks we've seen that opposition is rising in the book of Acts with intensified force. We had warnings and threats in chapter 4, threats and flogging in chapter 5, and it climaxes here as a Christian is stoned to death in chapter 6 and 7. Uh, You remember the fence-sitting that Gamaliel promised or suggested would be helpful in chapter 5? That's gone as the violence increases. But interestingly, last week we finished on a somewhat utopian picture of the church as the apostles moved swiftly to address some internal conflict between differing groups. Uh, Seven godly men were appointed, uh, and they were to meet the practical needs of the church so the apostles could preach the gospel unhindered. And in chapter 6, verse 7, God's word is spreading and the rapid growth of the church is being enjoyed. But the picture doesn't last long as one of the seven men, Stephen, begins to preach, which encourages us that the role of deacon did not limit him or silent him from preaching the gospel. But as he preaches in verse 9, uh, opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now uh, this name suggests that this is a synagogue made up of Jews who either they or their parents were at one time slaves and it's a very diverse group. They're from all over the place, Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia and Asia, which tells us that they are Greek or Hellenistic in origin just like Stephen. But as he preaches, in verse 9, they begin to argue with him and it doesn't go well. Verse 10, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. But from there, things kind of spiral out. From argument, we move to slander. Verse 11, they secretly persuade men to speak against Stephen. Then verse 13, they organize some false witnesses. But the spiral continues, argument leads to slander, slander to violence. As they arrest him, having rushed at him, and verse 12, they drag him off to the Sanhedrin, that is a Jewish council. Uh, And the charges they bring against him are super serious. Verse 11, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Verse 13, this fellow never stops. Notice exaggeration is a classic tale of lies. He never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. Now, these are some super serious charges. Now, uh, I know we've got our own issue of tea and coffee in the auditorium, but this is the next level, right? Uh, To be against Moses, the law, the temple, is actually to be against God himself, Uh, Moses was God's chosen leader to free the Israelites. The law was given, in fact, spoken by God himself. The holy place, the temple, that's where God himself dwells among his people. Uh, These are charges of the most sacred aspects of the Jewish faith. And so Stephen is deemed a blasphemer. But in the midst of this corrupt court hearing that we are essentially looking at, Stephen stands out to us as just a really godly dude. Uh, Verse eight, he's a man full of God's grace and power, for he performed great wonders and signs among the people. This is a description actually given to godly people like Moses, and in fact, Jesus himself. Stephen's like them. In fact, the charges they lay against Stephen are almost identical to the conflict that Jesus had with the Jews in the Gospels. In verse 14, they claim that Stephen says that Jesus will destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses. We see almost an identical thing in John chapter 2. In John 2:19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days days. And the Jews don't get it. They think he's threatening the temple building. But John reveals in John 2 verse 21 that Jesus was actually talking about his own body in the death, uh, his death and resurrection. And so these charges against Stephen, even though they're from false witnesses, they tell us that Stephen's on the same page as Jesus. He's probably speaking and teaching the very words of of Jesus, and they misunderstand Him just like they misunderstood Jesus. And we see that Stephen's wisdom uh, comes from the Spirit, as he speaks in verse 10. And actually what we 're seeing here is what Jesus told them would happen. In Luke 21, Jesus promised the disciples, "You will be brought before the synagogue." You will come and bear witness to me, but you should not worry when that happens uh, because Luke 21, verse 15, Jesus says, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And all of this is then confirmed in verse 15 as Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Uh, When I told a good friend of mine, who's a minister in Melbourne's West, named Stephen, that I was preaching on this passage, he offered to send me selfies to help illustrate this point. He loves this verse, and if your name's Stephen, I imagine you do too. But of course, what we're not meant to think is that he's just a supremely good-looking man, although that may be true. We're actually meant to have in our minds Moses. Because when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after meeting with God, his face is radiant, Exodus 34. And so he's putting Stephen in the realm of Moses. He is a God-approved man. Like the apostles and like Jesus, God's favour rests on Stephen. And so the court is seated. The charges have been laid. And then, verse 15, we sit with tension as the Sanhedrin stare intently at Stephen, waiting for his reply. And then, chapter 7, verse 1, they say, Are the charges, these serious charges, are they true? This is more intense than a bachelor rose ceremony. But what would you do if you were Stephen? False charges have been laid? Would you defend yourself? Perhaps attack the people making up their lies? Kind of start to unpack and degrade their identity as well? Like, if this was a movie, it probably would have descended into name-calling, personal attacks, maybe even a comical fight scene. But what does Stephen do? Well, he gives his defence in Chapter 7 in the form of a history lesson. His reply is the longest speech in the Book of Acts, and as Neil told me as I prepared, it it requires and in fact deserves the longest speech in the history of Bundy. So hold on. Or was it the opposite? It was the opposite. Yeah, sorry. Well, it's too late now. All right, either way. In verse 2, he he picks it up and he addresses the Sanhedrin as brothers and fathers. He's very respectful of them despite their corrupt nature. And he highlights that they, as Jewish people, share a common ancestry. And he begins in in verse 2 with the essential foundation of Israel's history with Abraham and the patriarchs. He highlights the promises God made to Abraham and his descendants of land, culminating in the covenant of circumcision in verse eight. And from the patriarchs of Isaac and Jacob came Joseph and his brothers in Egypt, to which Stephen turns in verses nine to 16. And if you know the story from Genesis, it's pretty messy, right? Joseph's brothers hate him and sell him into slavery. Yet God was at work to make Pharaoh favorable to him while fulfilling his promises to Abraham as well. But things take a turn. There's a new ruler in Egypt and he deals harshly with Israel. This then is the context for Moses' birth in Exodus chapter 1, and that's where Stephen goes in verses 17 to 43. It's the longest section in the speech, which shouldn't surprise us given that Moses and the law were key charges laid against Stephen. He begins with Moses' early life in Egypt, the challenges he faced uh, as he tried to unite with Israel, his unique encounter with God in the burning bush and ultimately the Exodus event and the wilderness wandering. To this he then makes a surprising and long jump from Moses to David and Solomon and, of course, the building of the temple in verses 44 to 50. But what's really important to see about Stephen's speech is that nothing he says is contentious or surprising. He is recounting Israel's history as it is, as it's recorded in the Old Testament. And so we can almost imagine here the Sanhedrin nodding along in agreement. But it doesn't mean that there is no point. Stephen is selective in what he recalls from Israel's history and does so carefully to address the charges laid against him. And Stephen makes very, very clear two points about both God and Israel in this speech. Obviously, we can't go through all the details as it's super long, but two things are very clear. God is consistent and so are Israel. Uh, God is consistent in that he speaks calls and works, irrespective of where he is. The God of Israel is a pilgrim, a moving God. We see this, that he calls Abraham, before there was law or tabernacle, in the land of Mesopotamia. His glory appears to Abraham, far from the promised land, long before God gave his law to Israel, God appeared to send and call, save and punish. Whether the land of the Chaldeans or the land of Haran. And the same point is made in Egypt. I hope as it was read, did you notice in this small section of Joseph in verses 9 to 16, Egypt is mentioned six times. Egypt, the place where God's people were famously oppressed and enslaved, God was at work. He was with them for their good. He showed favor to Joseph. He moved the hand of a wicked Pharaoh. In verse 17, God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham in Egypt to increase the descendants. And in fact, it was even in Egypt that God raised up for them Moses to deliver them from slavery. But when things didn't go well for Moses, he fled Egypt and went to Midian, still further from the promised land. And yet, as Moses fled, God appeared to him at Mount Horeb in the burning bush. As Moses approaches this burning bush that will not disappear, he's told he needs to take off his sandals because where he is is holy ground. Do you hear what Stephen's saying? There's no temple. But as Moses approaches the burning bush, it is a holy place. Then Moses takes Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. Verse 38, God is there too as they assemble at Mount Sinai. So whether Mesopotamia, Egypt, Midian, the wilderness, it does not matter. God is there and God is at work to reveal himself. And wherever God reveals himself, that place is holy. And notice his point is that this is still true even when they build the temple. He actually doesn't come to address the temple until verse 44. Uh, Stephen addresses it by talking about Solomon and David. Solomon was the one that got to build the temple, but even he knew when he built the temple, he knew that you can't put God in a house. Verse 48, he says, does the Most High, sorry, the Most High does not live in houses made by humans. Uh, He's actually recalling what Solomon himself said in the book of 1 Kings. He built the temple and then as he dedicated that temple, he's just like, is God really going to dwell on earth in a building where not even heaven itself can contain him? Don't misunderstand who God is. He cannot be contained, for heaven is his home and the earth is his footstool. You cannot localise, limit, or contain God. The God of Israel speaks, saves, works, even fulfils his promises wherever he chooses. And God has been consistent, active, and generous from the very beginning, And more than that, he has been consistent in that he is patient and kind to fulfill his promises with a people who love to reject him. That's the second point of Stephen's speech. God's consistent, but so are Israel. They're consistent in rebellion. Uh, In particular, they love to reject God's chosen leaders, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery out of jealousy verse 9. Moses was no ordinary child and had no ordinary revelation in the burning bush but when he came with good news to deliver Israel they rejected him too. Verse 39 they refused to obey him and rejected him. But even even so, they went further than just rejecting him. While Moses was talking to God on Mount Sinai, on their behalf, what were they doing? Building a calf to worship. And so Stephen makes this point really clear in verse 42 by quoting the book of Amos, even though Amos prophesied centuries after Moses and the Exodus. And by quoting Amos, he's making it really clear that their rebellion and rejection was not just a one-off event, but a consistent pattern. Israel loved to reject God's leaders, and they generally choose idolatry over worship. Uh, He shows this in verses 43 to 44. He, He brings in the temple, he says, Israel had the tabernacle... There's a deliberate contrast. It's very, very clever. He's like, Israel have got the tabernacle. They have it in their possession. But what do they do? They go to the tabernacle of Moloch and offer their idolatrous worship instead. They love to reject. They love to disobey. And they love to make idols. In fact, the quote from Isaiah 66 in verses uh, 48 to 50 is also meant to be a rebuke. Israel loves to misunderstand God. For although God could never be contained by a building, they let the presence and building of the temple convince them he could. Israel are a consistent people. They misunderstand God. They seek to contain or dictate their worship, or they just make idols instead. They reject his appointed leaders and disregard his word. But again, it's important to remember that nothing he's saying here they would have disagreed with or found offensive. This is Israel's history. But everything changes in verses 51 to 53 as Stephen comes to the application of his speech, and the point is very clear. History has repeated itself and has been applied in you. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Uh, He really doesn't hold any punches here. He's like, you're the same as Israel has always been. But notice he doesn't just say that, he goes further. He's like, Israel killed the prophets that predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's the Messiah who's going to save them. They killed them even though they predicted the Messiah. And when he finally showed up, you killed him. You're worse. You. You betrayed and you murdered him. God continues to speak, work, reveal himself and fulfill his promises and you keep rejecting him. You kill Jesus. And notice verse 53, Stephen's defense really turns into offense as he says, I'm not the one that's against Moses. I'm not against God and his law and the temple. You are. You prove that When you nailed Jesus to a cross. And so, what we see here is that Stephen's speech is not just kind of some random uh, selection of Israel's history, but amazing building blocks as he highlights their own sin and rejection. And you can feel the tension, right? He is absolutely smashing the Sanhedrin with this sermon. Uh, I can remember when I was about 10 years old, I thought I'd finally reached the point where I was fast enough to outrun my father and avoid punishment. I could pretty much get away with anything I wanted now. And so the moment came, I was inevitably caught doing something wrong. I was found by dad and I looked at him and I said, what are you going to do about it? And I ran into the backyard. Only to find that there was no exit. And I can remember the dread coming over me as I realised not only was Dad chasing me, I had nowhere to go. And so I was caught, I was put over the knee, and boy can I remember the punishment. In fact, it still stings a bit as I think about it. But as I look back I think to myself, what did I think was going to happen in that moment, right? Was I just going to run forever? It was a stupid plan. What did I think would happen? But if you ask the same question, what do you think Stephen thinks is going to happen as he applies his sermon? Surely he knew it wasn't going to go well. And I can tell you that it doesn't. As they respond to the sermon, we see two clear verdicts playing out here there's the human verdict, and there's God's verdict. In verse 54, they are absolutely furious. They're depicted as like ravenous wolves. They rush at him. They gnash their teeth. They can't stand his words. They cover their ears and scream at the top of their lungs. Their verdict is clear. He's a blasphemer and he must die. So although they had no right, they drag him out of the city and stone him to death. And yet we also see God's verdict. In the midst of this intense fury from the Sanhedrin, Stephen is almost surreally still. He's so calm. He's granted a wonderful vision. Full of the Spirit, he looks up to heaven and sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. Nowhere else in scripture is Jesus said to be standing in heaven. He's usually seated at the right hand of his father, a symbol of his finished work and privileged position. But here he stands, presumably ready to welcome and accept his first martyr, or at least to intercede for him before the father. But either way, God's verdict is very clear. This man will be welcomed into eternity. But do you notice how familiar the event is? Uh, Stephen has got amazing parallels with Jesus here. I've got it on a table for you. They both stand before a Sanhedrin to give testimony. Both of them. On the, on the eve of death, commit themselves to God and then both of them cry out in a loud voice and pray for the forgiveness of those who are killing them. And so we see this Christ-like character in the midst of a brutal and violent scene where told Stephen falls asleep. It's actually a surprisingly peaceful description for an amazingly violent death. But it serves as a wonderful reminder of the comfort that the resurrection of Jesus brings, that the sting of death has gone and nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. And it's an amazingly powerful scene. Stephen prays and commits himself to Jesus. He prays to Jesus and commits his spirit to him. He cries out and prays for the forgiveness of those killing him. And yet all the while, the sounds of the stones flying past him. The stones even flying and hitting his flesh can be heard as he does it. It is a powerful scene. But Luke, as he writes this, does not let us finish there. He wants us to not simply be caught up in the tragedy and even injustice of this death. He draws our attention to the bigger picture that is at play. Uh, We're told in verse 58 that a man named Saul was present and he's going to dominate the rest of the book of Acts. Saul, who is at the time the chief persecutor of Christians who just two chapters later will have a vision of Christ and be converted and suffer for Christ himself. In fact, Saul converted to be Paul is probably the eyewitness who gave this account to Luke as he wrote the book of Acts. Saul is there, but more than that, chapter 8, verse 1, persecution breaks out against the church, which drives them out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And do you see what's happening? It takes us back to chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus has sent the apostles to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was what he sent them to. And do you see what's happening? As they kill Stephen, the gospel really is unstoppable. They kill the witness, and the gospel will spread and flourish because of it. God is fulfilling his plans and purposes to make the gospel go out. It really is unstoppable. And we're going to unpack that on camp next weekend. I hope you will be there. But for now, let's uh, consider what Stephen, the first martyr, has to say for us. And I actually think he has lots to teach us about responding to hostility which I think is a pretty timely word for us. Throughout Acts, hostility, threat, opposition are common. In fact, they're to be expected. Jesus promised it. Christians should expect hatred and betrayal even from those closest to them, like family and friends, even parents. And although in no way do we kind of share the level of hostility that we see in Acts, There is rising hostility for Christians in Australia, particularly for those who are transparent about their conviction of Jesus and his word. I know that many of us here uh, tonight have even experienced this idea of rejection, exclusion, mockery from family or colleagues or friends for a commitment to Jesus. And for us, Stephen serves as a faithful, God-approved example on how, should we, how we should respond to this hostility. Firstly, Stephen shows us that essential to our response is being like Jesus. Luke is consistently trying to show us how Christ-like he is in his speech and actions, and he serves as an example for each of us. Stephen loves his enemies as he prays for them for their forgiveness as they kill him. In the face of aggression and violence, he is calm, articulate, and respectful. He doesn't resort to slander or threats or violence, and neither should we. We must be those who do not pay evil for evil but overcome evil with good as Paul says to Titus, so that we will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. And it is, isn't it? It's so easy for us to be hurt or offended as people attack us for our faith and we seek to defend ourselves or even discredit them. But Stephen shows us that our ultimate aim in responding to hostility is not not to vindicate ourselves, but to exalt Jesus. Stephen wants them to know that even though they hate him and hate Jesus, he wants them to know that Jesus is a good saviour, a saviour he can trust, a saviour who is worth dying for. And as Stephen lives like Jesus, he speaks of Jesus. Did you see how amazingly Stephen's speech was crafted to be a specific response to, their, to his audience's accusation? He uses common ground with them. He draws them in, but then ultimately lands at Jesus. And although his speech is quite lengthy... Did you see that he didn't kind of get caught up focusing his attention on debating issues like law and temple? He wanted to speak of Jesus. And although they cut him off in their anger, he uses his dying moments to point to him still as he prays for their forgiveness. He makes sure he speaks of Jesus who lives and saves and demands a response. And that is a timely word for Christians because in the midst of hostility we are excellent at debating and talking about everything other than a good savior and then thirdly and finally as we speak of Jesus who rules the world as we speak and have conversations that point to Jesus who rules and loves and forgives we must also respond to hostility by looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus for confidence and comfort. Jesus who is near to us, who has promised to give us words to speak when we are challenged. Jesus who is the risen king who works in and through us by his spirit to be witnesses and bring people to himself. Look to Jesus with joyful confidence that even if you are rejected and hated for your witness, he is near to you, providing for you, and he will ultimately vindicate you when you stand before God. Look to Jesus so that we, like many brothers and sisters before us, can be what Revelation calls those who do not love their own lives so much that they shrink from death. Stephen shows us that Jesus is trustworthy. He will welcome us into glory as his faithful witnesses. And nothing, not even a world that longs to silence him and his people, can stop the spread of the gospel. Let's be people who respond to hostility by committing to live like Jesus, to speak of Jesus, and look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the risen and ruling King. In a world that often rejects Jesus and his people, Father, we confess that often we are fearful and we can be angry. And so we pray, have mercy on us. We thank you for people like Stephen and the faithful example he sets. Please move us to follow that example. People that live like Jesus, who speak of Jesus, and who look to Jesus. Thank you for his good promises. Please encourage us that you work in and through us. For our good and for his fame. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.